This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. This is Robert Kraft. I am your host for the uh, Investors Roundtable. This is the fifth episode of the show. And in honor of opening day, baseball finally being back. And also my first time back in the office, first time wearing the mask. And uh, look, me and Kevin did not plan this. This just happened to be a thing. But, uh, you know, uh, I I appreciate you all joining us today. Uh, My name, again, is... My name is Robert Kraft. Again, I'm your host for this show. Joining me today uh, via, Zoom, <laughs> <laughs> via Zoom is Stephen Keel from Willow Oak Asset Management. We got Kevin Shea, full-time private investor and microcap club contributor, and Jerome Neymark from One Main Capital. And joining us just via audio, one day he will join us via video as well. We got Mr. Chris Irons, quote the Raven himself, uh, joining us. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me today. How's everyone doing? Hey, thanks, Robert. Go Cubs. Uh, Uh, That's why we're talking about Lester. (laughs) All right. All right. Well, I figured we kind of get started with our, with our guest that uh, it's his first time on here because uh, you know, he hasn't given his general, I mean, he's given his general assessment on his own show on Twitter. Um, You know, you know, if you know him, you love him, you know, Chris, since the last time we spoke, and I, and I remember specifically you said, Bobby, you only talk to me when the market's down like crazy. You know, we've seen a little bit of a recovery since. So as I said, now we're talking s- since the recovery. And I promised you'd be on for that. So, you know, what's your general assessment? What's going on? What, what are you thinking? Well, I don't know really what you want me to tell you other than the recovery has been engineered. It's not based on any economic data. The stock market is completely separated from the economy as a whole. We're looking at a recovery in stocks because of the action that the Federal Reserve has taken and not due to any type of uh, underlying economic data. And I'm actually bullish on the recovery. I'm bullish on uh, the macro data getting better over the next year, probably quicker and um with more gusto than most people think. But having said that, the fact that the S&P is back to, you know, 3,200 or 3,300 is not a product of anything that is going on in our economy. And uh, it's uh, completely disconnected from reality for the most part. But it's not to say that I don't think the market can go higher. I think it can. I think that will have no basis in reality. Um, That's why I like to own precious metals as well, because much of what is catalyzing the move here and the, I don't even know if you want to call it a recovery in stocks is then the uh, Fed's money printer. And that's it. Absolutely. I mean, look, this is actually something that I think we've covered a few times already on the show. And, and I I think even a few people here have, have expressed those similar sentiments. Anybody have a, a, want to respond to that? I think, I think Chris's commentary is very much similar to what we've been talking about over the past three or four sessions. Um, various people have contributed virtually along the same lines. Um, 
you know, with more, maybe even with a little bit more forceful opinion, but uh, <clears throat> yeah, Federal Reserve is driving the, driving the economy, driving, not driving the economy, but driving the market. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I wish Adrian was here. I think Adrian, I mean, I think that, I think we, I think Adrian and Chris would be best friends at this point based on, <laughs> so Absolutely. you know, I mean, uh, in reality, yeah. I mean, Steve, well, no, I think the, yeah, I think the, then the question it leads to when, when does this end, you know, and I think that's maybe the more interesting discussion at this point, because we all agree that uh, things, certain stocks, uh, certain sectors are completely disconnected from reality. And at some point that has to end at some point, uh, you know, uh, the, the stock prices themselves start to match the reality of the underlying operations of some of these companies. And in my view, I think when we come up on election time period, closer to, closer to the election, uh, when we come uh, with next year's uh, earnings estimates, um, maybe even going out a couple of years when uh, COVID adjusted earnings estimates and things like that, that are, that are coming out. Um, you know, I, I think that's when you start to see the reality of the consequences from the last six months, whether the COVID continues, how much longer it continues, whether things begin to shut down again or not because of the cases going up again, uh, we'll, we'll see, but we've seen this in the retail space already. Today, we had another bankruptcy uh, filed uh, in the retail space and you know, that's going to trickle all the way down to the mall owners, the real estate, um, you know, the entire sector and, and go from there. And, and so at some point, and it's a matter of when, right? At some point it's going to break and it probably break hard. Yeah. I mean, who was that? I didn't see who, who went bankrupt. Or, or the market will continue to go up and the dollar will just turn into fucking Swiss cheese. <laughs> yeah. Ann Taylor went bankrupt, uh, uh, went bankrupt today. So um, you know, you're, this Ann Taylor is a big one because you got 1,100 uh, stores, and so they're in most malls. They're really going to hit some of the, uh, you know, the outlet malls and things like that. So, um, yeah, it, it could, can, you know, look, it's kind of like uh, what is it, MMT for stocks or something like that, you know? Yeah, no, for sure. You're wrong. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you guys. There are pockets of the market that are just borderline absurd. Um, I think a lot of them are these low float stocks that are, appear to be manipulated daily by the Robin Hooders. But I, I, where I disagree with you is that um, I don't think the market as a whole is really absurd. I think if you think back to like, well, let's go to the last big recession, the 2008 financial crisis, like it's clear that stocks were too cheap after that financial crisis because the, the forward returns of the market over the next call it three or four years were much higher than you would expect on an average year in the stock market. So like it typically stocks should be priced for you to make, I don't know, call it 10% a year. If you're making more than that over a period of time, over a very long period of time, like stocks were too cheap at the starting point of that period. And I think the reason why stocks typically get too cheap is because people are worried about the world ending, right? Banks going under, uh, bar companies not being able to borrow anymore, counterparty risk, consumers all going bankrupt. And so I think when the Fed and just the federal government step in and tell you quicker and quicker each time and tell you like, we're not gonna let this happen, 
I do think part of it is reflexive, right? Like investors are just getting more and more used to it, used to it. But part of it is just you're taking that existential risk off the table for in a lot of these situations, so such that companies are no longer priced on like what if they go bankrupt scenario. They're priced on what people believe their fundamentals to be, and they compare what those fundamentals are to what other alternatives they have to invest in at the moment. So like currently you have risk-free rate very low. There's nowhere for people to earn any like real yield without taking risk. They're going further out on the risk curve. And a lot of very sophisticated investors are saying, okay, like if I could buy this company at 25 or 30 times earnings, my current earnings yield implied by that is, I don't know, three or 4%. But if I'm very confident this company is going to be able to grow their earnings through cycle at a nice rate, I'm willing to pay that high multiple. I understand that that means I'm locking myself in to lower prospective returns, right? Because like you don't get multiple expansion on the way out potentially. But where else am I going to earn, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine percent? So like I'm willing to earn five, six, seven in the stock market. So I do think like not the entire stock market is absurd and crazy and Swiss cheese. I do think that there are pockets of the market that are like that. And it's <clears throat> I do think it, it's getting it gets more and more dangerous the more this mania goes on in those pockets of the market. But I just don't see it as systemic yet. Like I don't see the Nasdaq at well, you know. 100 times earnings. I don't see the S&P at 50 times earnings. Like, Okay. All right. Hold on for one second. The Fed is the existential risk. You're saying you don't see any existential risk because the Fed keeps stepping in, but the Fed is the existential risk. And you're talking about making money from an earnings yield, uh, you know, that is uh, essentially nominal. Okay. So you're talking about making money in nominal terms. You're not talking about making money in real terms once we account for the amount of damage that the central bank is doing to the overall economy by the amount of money that it has to print. So I agree the, with the, you. the Fed right. So the, the Fed is the existential risk, first off. And you know, this idea that twenty five, thirty times earnings is cheap like you're talking about is insane. And with all due respect, I mean, you know, historically price to earnings ratios of between, you know, maybe seven and 12 or seven and 13, depending on what kind of industry you're talking about, whether it's a capital intensive industry, like automotives and uh, airlines where, you know, four, five, six times earnings is very cheap, or you're talking about more uh, everyday industries where, you know, a PE of under 10 is relatively cheap to come out and make the argument that the market is not absurdly valued right now just goes to show how, much the fed has skewed the perception of the market and the economy right now because you know you're never going to find a value investor who has been in the game since the 80s or since the 90s or as a Graham disciple or a buffett disciple that's going to tell you that a shiller pe of 31 is cheap uh it's going to tell you that you know the market isn't overvalued and, and especially when you when you again you consider the macroeconomic data right now yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to make the argument that stocks are cheap. I'm not trying to make the argument that stocks are cheap, but like even the Oracle of Omaha himself has said, if he knew rates would stay low at, at these levels for a, a very long period of time, then stocks are absurdly cheap here at, you know, not that Well, let me tell you something. The Fed has guaranteed that rates are going to stay this low. Yes, yeah, so I'm not arguing. 2023, and that's, that's what they've said. And Buffett hasn't deployed any capital. So, I will let Buffett's cash do the talking. 
I'm not going to argue argue that that what the Fed is doing is right. I'm just saying that given what the Fed is doing, I'm not saying stocks are cheap. Cheap means you can make really good returns. I think people aren't thinking, you know, buying Microsoft at these levels that they're going to make really great, you know, 15% IRRs. They're just like, okay, the Fed put me in a situation where I can't even make 4% on, you know, low risk bonds. So I'm okay making 4% in Microsoft. So I'm not saying it's cheap. You're going to make great returns. I just think, and I'm not saying what the Fed is doing is right. I agree with you. The Fed is distorting a lot of asset prices. And, you know, you could make the case for why it's good. You could make the case for why it's bad. Um, I'm not saying what they're doing is good. I'm just saying that a lot of sophisticated investors, given the dilemma of this, the situation they're in right now, are, you know, consciously going in at these valuations. And I don't think they're being completely irrational given the choices they have to make because a pension fund cannot go 100% into gold or 100% cash, right? Their liabilities are growing and they have to put money in something that generates a yield and a return. Well, pension funds can invest in gold and silver. Yeah, but they can't put 100% of their fund in gold and silver. No, they can't, but they can take a sizable position. And that's why silver is going up 10% a day right now. I agree. All right, so we're on the same page. We are. All right. Well, I mean, I, th- I think instead of quoting Buffett from here on out, we have to, we're only allowed to quote Davy Day Trader because uh, that's the kind of market <laughs> that we're in here. Uh, when do you think inflation comes back, Chris? Well, inflation is happening, right? So everybody is misconstruing inflation as what the uh, PCE number is or what the uh, core CPI number is. But really, inflation is just the uh, addition to the money supply which has been happening. If you look at the M2 money supply, I mean, it's up something like 23% year over year right now over the last quarter, which is an absurd amount. So that money and, and the argument is going to be a kind of a velocity of money argument. Well, it's all kind of parked in super secret Goldman Sachs accounts and it hasn't come out and, you know, people haven't used the $5 trillion to buy loaves of bread yet. So we're not seeing a runoff in consumer prices, but that's a foregone conclusion. It's going to happen at some point and it's going to happen relatively soon. The money is out there now. Um, So if you look at inflation in terms of the expansion of the money supply, we're watching it happen right before our eyes. And, you know, the sad thing is when it shows up in consumer prices, a lot of people are going to be acting very surprised, Um, but it's it's a foregone conclusion. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I, the, the, the million dollar question is when it starts to show up, though, in, um, you know, kind of day to day life here. And, you know, given COVID, it's, it's probably been, I don't know, you know, you look at look at things like real estate, look at uh, other other plays. I mean, I'm not into the precious metals like you guys are. But, um, you know, if, if I wanted to invest uh, along this thesis that uh, inflation was going to come back, and come back hard, I would look at real estate and that's not an area I can, you know, would want to look at at this, at this point, given, given the COVID crisis. So it's, it's a tough, well, it's about trying to find real returns and not nominal returns when you're talking about, you know, which asset class is going to inflate the most and then trying to kind of get ahead of that. I mean, real estate has its risks too, especially commercial real estate where all of these businesses now are, basically adopting a work-at-home model that really looks like it's going to be semi-permanent for a lot of these companies. So, uh, you know, it's about finding real returns, right? Not nominal returns. Yeah. And I mean, COVID, 
I, I agree long-term what the Fed is doing right now is inflationary, but in the near term, COVID is very deflationary to the world. So timing when that, when those kind of two lines cross is a very difficult thing to do. I mean, um, Kevin, what do you think? Have you, you got any thoughts on what's going on here? Actually, I'm very interested just listening to what's going on right now. Um, and you know, the, the, all three speakers have um, obviously been engaged in this conversation or be doing research in it for quite some time. And I think that the commentary about when is it going to happen is, is quite, uh, quite the interesting thing. And uh, you just shrug my shoulders and sit down and say, who the hell knows? I mean, ultimately. I don't even know whether there are metrics that to be to be followed. Are there are there metrics or are there performance indicators or any sort of indicators that would be uh, referenced at this point in time to give anybody an idea? And I I don't know. I mean, is is there? You know, what are we looking at? I mean, I'm I'm looking at technical analysis, and what what I'm looking at is some of the some of the um, the stock prices are so far above their standard deviations right now that it's getting really spooky again. You know, so. Um, when you compare when you compare the uh, the cues, you know against what happened back in March, um, you're looking at the same thing from a technical perspective. Um, and Bobby and I have had this conversation. Is I mean I follow the technicals because I think it I think it uh, interprets the sentiment. I think that when people who are having these conversations make their decisions about when to when to deploy funds or when to go to cash, that sentiment is is marketedly shown. In the in the charts, in the technical portion of the chart. So, um, unless there are macro indicators of some sort, of micro indicators of other sorts, I'm just watching the watching the technical part of charts in the in the in the um, in the markets just to see whether or not there's anything that can be interpreted that way. Well, historically, there's no precedent for what we're doing right now, so it's Indeed. extraordinarily difficult to try to figure out what the leading indicator is going to be yeah. right now, right? Like if you ask somebody like me, I'm a hard money guy, so I'm going to tell you M2 is the leading indicator because that tells me everything I need to know. It tells me the money's out there. It's just not being moved around in the right way or it just hasn't hit the right asset class yet or whatever. So um, when it comes to a question of trying to figure out like what the canary in the coal mine is going to be, right. uh, you know, it, it's it's really difficult, but there's nothing that is going to if we woke up tomorrow morning and gold was up 10%, right? Which would be let's say gold's up $200 an ounce tomorrow morning. Or if 12 months from now, uh, you know, CPI is at 5% or 6%, would it surprise anybody? And the answer is no. I mean, we're all kind of we all kind of are on notice that it seems like this inevitability. I mean, even after 2008, we printed all this money and everybody says, well, we never really got the inflation that everybody was talking about, which is total bullshit. The inflation just showed up in different places. And also, too, you know, if you look at a basket of normal individual consumer goods versus what the Fed is using for the CPI, it becomes very evident that inflation is, listen, I'm at a tiki bar right now, okay? I just paid $14 for a drink. All right. Now, listen, I'm at I'm, a, I'm on a beach. OK, so I expect to pay a little bit more. But fourteen dollars we're talking about. All right. I paid seven for my coffee cheap. this morning. <laughs> yeah. Well, I tell you what, man, in this, you know, shithole beach that I'm at right now, 
it's actually it's a little expensive for here. This is a place yeah. I come to all the time, so I'm familiar with the prices. The point is, you know, if gold goes, if we wake up and gold's at 2,500 tomorrow, it makes a historic 40% move. Or if you, you know, if you show up at the uh, supermarket in 12 months from now and a gallon of milk is 8.99 or 9.99, it's not going to surprise anybody. And it's, uh, as I said before, it's a foregone conclusion. But we are embarking on an unprecedented. What we're doing right now is unprecedented. We've never done it before. So it's very difficult to try to forecast uh, when and how these things are going to take place. I mean, the only certainty is that they're going to take place. I I, I agree with you that what the Fed is doing has the, it introduces the risk of that type of inflation. It's just when you see headlines like the one of United Airlines today saying they're overstaffed by 20,000 people and all these companies that are looking to, you know, let people now work from home. So they want to cancel leases on their office space and you hear of all these auto deal, I mean, auto manufacturers or airline, aero, you know, players, they're all like, a lot of people are cutting, cutting jobs. And when, when you have people cutting jobs, I think that's massively deflationary to the economy and the government giving those people that money to go out and buy what they would have bought if they just got their paycheck is not as inflationary as if they just handed people those money that money when they already had the yeah. job. Yeah. Well, think yeah. about the three biggest drivers, right, in the last maybe 20 years for, for inflation. You have um, higher education, right? You have healthcare, you have real estate. And in this environment today, each of those three things uh, are, are kind of in deflationary um, situations almost, given the COVID crisis and maybe what the ramifications will be over the next year or two. Uh, you know, and those are, those are, kind of the three biggest uh, drivers there that aren't. You think aren't healthcare, you think healthcare and education are, are experiencing deflation right now? Well, higher education is certainly uh, going to be in a unique situation over the next year. I think there's going to be a significant demand drop there. Um, and, you know, healthcare with all of the kind of tele telemedicine things. I mean, look, I haven't gone into the doctor uh, recently, but I've had like a, a, uh, you know, virtual, you know, video meeting with the doctor, things like that. And those types of things, um, uh, you know, I think the, the rate of their historic inflation was extreme and it's, it's not gonna be possible for that to continue going forward. And in some cases it, it, uh, it may be flat. And in higher education, I think a bubble's about to burst over the next few years. Well, I think part of this also depends on what you think, uh, how you think we'll deal with COVID going forward and how big of an impact that's going to be. Now, I personally think that probably within six months, I would say COVID is going to be a total afterthought. And what I mean by that is we will have a therapeutic, we will have more than one vaccine, and we will think of getting a COVID shot every year the same way we think of getting our flu shot. And uh, we'll know it's out there. I don't think it's going away. Um, but I think once we get some more robust data, it's going to be very clear that COVID is uh, not as absolutely lethal as we thought that it was at the beginning. And nobody was, nobody was advocating to take caution more than I was in January. But seeing the data that we have now, seeing you know, the amount of asymptomatic cases we have, seeing what the reasonable case fatality rate is now, I think that we're going to experience probably a quicker recovery than most people think the, you know the question of higher education and and healthcare 
Um, I still think people are going to have to go to their doctors in person. I think telemedicine will play a part, so I think you make a very good point there. But I'm not sure that it's going to be profound enough to cause the deflation that you're talking about. I also think that um, higher education, you know, which is basically subsidized by the government who puts together these student loans now. I mean, the government is in charge of basically subsidizing higher education, which is what enables the colleges and universities to charge a shitload of money. I think all this is going to do is enable them to charge more money to do less under the guise of, hey, we're providing you with the stay-at-home option now. So instead of lowering our faculty-to-student ratio, which we've been doing because the checks have been coming in guaranteed from the government, we're going to make it uh, even better for us because now everything will be done online. So now maybe we can go 50 students to one uh, faculty member. So I'm not sure that'll cause the type of deflation that you're talking about. But again, a lot of it hinges on what you think the, uh, what, what, you know, how quickly you think we'll recover from COVID and whether you think there'll be profound effects or not. I, I mean, educate, education, healthcare, and real estate, I agree those are the inflationary drivers, but like those are really the three big areas of spend that we, a, are pretty much forced to spend money on in today's society, and B, they operate in a cartel-like fashion. Um, like the top universities, like they name their price and you kind of have to go and they all, kinda, it's an oligopoly, right? There's only like so many of them, they're capacity constrained. It's not really exposed to free markets. And then on top of that, you have the government lending people money, as much money as they need to go to these schools. So like if, you know, the good schools raise their price 15% a year, the government will just lend the students 15% a year more. So they have unlimited pricing power. So that, that makes sense why that's been inflationary. Healthcare, there's limited capacity for, I mean, it's, it's very cartel-like. There's limited capacity of physicians in this country. Um, you have um, like all the pharma and, and device companies they have patents and they could charge whatever they want and you can't, it's not really a discretionary area to spend. And then real estate, like you have to live somewhere and typically you have to live within a certain distance of your work. And there, there's only a certain amount of apartments or houses within a certain reasonable distance from, you know, where people live. And so like, it makes sense why those have been inflationary. Also with real estate, like interest rates going down for such a long period of time has made affordability of purchasing you know, it's pushed valuations of real estate higher as well. So that makes sense. But like all the other areas where I, where I spend money, other than those three, where like they're more subject to like free market, right? Like if you're buying a car, if you're buying food, like anytime any of these companies earn slightly above their cost of capital, like new supply is added on and then their margins get compressed again until they earn slightly below their cost of capital. And then people stop adding new capacity. And I think like, and then on top of that, you have all this technology, which like Google search is something I get for free. Google maps, something I get for free. Um, all this stuff that like has added tremendous value to my life that I'm not paying for. That's been deflationary. So like, I'm, I don't, I'm not so convinced that like all the other areas where I spend money other than those three are going to like magically become super inflationary overnight. Um, but the, inf the inflation, the inflation comes from the money part right? The inflation doesn't come from the rise in prices. The inflation is the addition of new money to the money supply, which yeah. dilutes the purchasing power of the money that's already in existence. Right. And, and that's, it doesn't matter whether that shows up 
in uh, pineapples or it shows up in lacrosse sticks. The fact of the matter is the money has been printed. The purchasing power of the money in supply already is diluted, and that's where the inflation takes place. It doesn't, doesn't take place when – you know, uh, Goldman frees up a, a trillion dollar uh, account that it got from the discount window from the Fed and puts it all into uh, milk. Well, inflation really only happens when demand exceeds supply of something, right? Like if there's only like four cartons of milk in no, the store, that's, if there's only, that's, if there's only, it's, it's, it's actually true. Like think about when people are able to raise prices on you. Cause if, if there's a ton of, if there's an abundance of something and someone tries to raise the price on you, just because they know you have more money, you're going to go across the street and buy it at the other store and there's competition. So like they're going to be competing. Those sellers of that product are going to be competing against each other on price. So really the only time they could actually jack the price on you and make it stick is if there's not enough supply of something. So typically if people, if, if you print money and give people more and more money and they go out and buy more and more stuff, such that there's not enough stuff out there for everyone to buy, they'll bid up, right? They have the extra money, they'll go and bid stuff up. But like that, that you have to have uh, capacity constraints in the things people are trying to buy for that. That's the only way the price no, is going to bid up. It's less about the price, it's less about the price of, of products and services. And it's more about the amount of supply of money. Okay. Can I jump in? Yeah. Um, one of the things that were mentioned is the issues of higher education and, and uh, healthcare. Um, the, the one thing that I've been looking at recently is this whole idea of dispersion and how people are, seem, are seemingly beginning to um, leave these high, highly dense, high density areas like LA, San Francisco, Boston, Philadelphia, et cetera, and are moving away because they know that they can work from home. One of the things that I've been looking at is all of a sudden uh, housing prices in Montana have begun to rise rapidly, okay, with a lot of the money coming from these high, highly paid jobs in, in, uh, in, these, in these urban areas. A couple of things I was looking at is, is what is the dispersion going to do? How does it create um, opportunity? Uh, again, in the real estate, looking at real estate or telemarketing, not telemarketing, telemedicine. Um, and similarly, what happens when, when the well-paid jobs are maintained at those high, high, high price levels. And how does that affect the economies of some state like Montana in which they don't really have a high tech industry yet they may very well be receiving one during this dispersion of people right. as they move around the country. So with dispersion, I think you upset just about everything. If you certainly you can upset real estate again, certainly you're going to sit down and look at the healthcare um, a kid from a kid from Google who's living in Montana is going to demand that the, he has high-priced, high-quality medicine, and that's going to drive telemedicine. Um, I and the other thing about it is, is that I've been watching the education bubble for ten years. I thought it was going to collapse a long time ago, um, but here we go again and again and again. What you find is that young men, young men and women are coming out of school with degrees. And end up being contractors or bartenders or something like that. So, right. um, it, I mean, the, the capacity of being able to to create or generate um, a return from those money spent in education is becoming shit. Uh, excuse me, Bobby. But Correct. It's, 
Well, those, so, you know, there's a lot of I things agree. that are being wrapped up here um, <laughs> with regard to uh, shifting, shifting um, uh, um, protocols that otherwise might never have occurred if they weren't for this, this COVID thing. So I'm, I'm very I think you're making talking about dispersion. I think you're making a really good point about an exodus that is uh, already happening from cities. And I think uh, there's a couple of things going on, right? The first is people don't want to be in cities because of the virus. Obviously, cities are densely populated. People are close to each other. All of my friends that live in New York City, the first thing they said in three months, three months ago when this became a big deal was how do they go? How do I get the fuck out of the city? Where do I go? Do I go to Westchester? Do I go to Connecticut? Do I, you know, move to the Sahara Desert? How the hell do I get away from people, right? So that's one thing. We're going to see a natural kind of uh, exodus from cities uh, due to that. The second thing is that um, with employment, a lot of people move to cities because their jobs are in cities. That's one of the main attractions. It's the main, you know, one of the big forms of gravity that pulls people into places like New York and London. Nobody goes to these places because they think it would be fucking fantastic to spend $16 for a pint of beer. People go there because their job is there. They, they, you know, they move to New York City and they hope that they can earn a wage that barely allows them to afford to live in New York City. And as anybody that's ever gone through that knows, you know, when you first start doing that, you definitely don't earn enough to do that. And, and the cities, you know, the, the cost of living in these cities is, uh, is extraordinary. And, but, but part of the reason that they can maintain that is because they continue to kind of have this funnel into these major cities due to uh, employment opportunities. So those will go away too, as more and more people transition to work at home. And there's been all of these companies that we've seen that have said, oh, you know, we're maybe not 100%, but we're gonna make 30% of our workforce work at home now permanently, 40% permanently. It saves the company's costs, which is fantastic. They don't have to buy the commercial real estate and it saves people the fucking headache of moving there which is why you're seeing apartment prices in places like Manhattan collapse near where there are these giant, uh, very well-known commercial office spaces and these giant skyscrapers that have these enormous businesses in them because people are getting away from them. In addition to that, you have liberal politicians, not to make this a political discussion, I'm just making a statement of fact here. You have liberal politicians in many of these cities that want to raise taxes, okay, and lower the amount of law and order in these jurisdictions. So New York is a perfect example. We have Bill de Blasio. He fucking couldn't hit sand if he fell off a camel, all right? He wants to defund the police department, and he wants to, New York's talking about now, implementing a tax on stock trades they're talking about. They want to they tax a penny, I think, on stocks under $5 that you trade per share and five cents per share on stocks, I think, that are over $20 uh, a share, which is insane, okay? And what you're going to see with all of those things combined, and that's also, Bobby, for places like California, too, man, where they're running these huge deficits. You know, you have people shitting on the streets in San Francisco, and you have liberal politicians unable to understand with a tax rate of, you know, 90% or whatever the hell it is in San Francisco, why they don't have enough money to fix the problems because they don't understand that the solution is less government, okay, and not more government. So you're going to see this mass exodus 
out of places like New York City, out of places like California. And people are going to go to Texas. People are going to go to Florida. They're going to go to Puerto Rico. They're going to go to places where the taxes are low, where it's easier to do business, where there's law and order. So uh, sorry to go on a bit here, but it's about, you know, not just the effects of COVID on the cities, but the effects of, uh, you know, taxes going up in major cities, too. It's, it's, we're going to see a huge exit. I would, if I could figure out a way to get a pure play short exposure just on citywide real estate, I would pound that right now. I think that is the trade. Yep. What I'm, what I'm also saying the same thing is, is that you're, go, you're going to be a, a huge benefit uh, when you're a non-tax state. I mean, Wyoming is certainly right. one. Uh, it's also a great place to get. And the other thing that's happening is, is that, that um, connectivity, uh, I'm out in Breckenridge, Colorado, and they're putting in fiber optics into, the, into Breckenridge, which is a lovely place to stay. There's no, there's no industry to speak about here other than tourism. But I can sit right. here and I can sit here and, and, and trade. I can sit here and do, I can, I can do a lot of different things um, because I have a great Wi-Fi. So again, um, there are draws that are, that are um, compelling people to leave these places um, because the services that you're getting are comparable in some fashion, comparable to the point where they keep you connected. Um, but at the same time is, is that the, the quality of life versus the, versus the quality of life in, in some of these situations is far superior. I will only make one question, one comment. Um, the one thing that exists that is of value to me in any sort of, 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 of any sort of uh, urban environment or highly institutionalized environments, things of that type, is the value of, of networking and the value of connectivity of people. Um, sure. Let's face it, when you go to, when you go to a, an Ivy League school, you don't go there just to get an education. You go there because all of, all the, all of the, um, the highbrow MBAs who come out of these places are going to be the captains of industry. I want to know who the hell they are so that when I start doing my deals, I'm, I'm very, very well connected already. So I don't think that's going to go away at all. I know for a fact that if I'm a Harvard Business School guy, I want to know who all my, all my, um, my, uh, my friends are, who the alumni are, and that I'm capable of being able to call them up, you know, instantaneously for any sort of, any sort of, um, contribution the masking the part. So I think that there's a there's good news and bad news on this dispersion thing. Um, you know, the non-Ivy Leaguer tear down that stigma. Tear it down already. It's antiquated. I, I, I actually <laughs> I've been staring at them all the time. I mean, being a Bostonian, it's you know you kind of you kind of um, living in the in the uh, in the pit of it. But uh, you know, I'm saying there's good news and bad news about um, about um, dispersion and, and, and exodus of, the, uh, of, of individuals from these areas. But, um, but the other thing about it is if you, look, if, you, if you pass this thing out 20 years from now, it'd be fascinating to find out because what it suggests is it suggests homo, um, homogenization in some fashion of, of communities um, around particular areas. I mean, homogenization of technology. Um, the Google, Google guys and Google gals right now are pretty much in the urban environment, but one of the kids that I know, he's 30 years old, MIT grad, he's living up in northern Vermont, okay, making, making his ton of money that he's going to be paid anyway in Boston, but he's living in Vermont. Um, what's that going to do to, to the Vermont economy? And this is way up in the Northeast Kingdom. Um, if, if all of his friends start to move up there and they begin, they begin to bring uh, the attitudes and um, expectations arriving from living in the Boston area or living in LA or whatever, 
um, how does that impact long-term um, uh, contributions in society? So again, I'm very, very interested in seeing what's going on in the democratization um, uh, of this type of stuff. I mean, if you look at it you know, from, from a demographics, what I mean by democratization is demographics, not politics. Um, again, how is this all gonna fare out? And, and is this COVID thing really going to have a, a long-term dramatic impact upon the way in which cultures are gonna be, are gonna be operating? I'll pose a question to you guys. Maybe we are seeing all this money supply cause inflation, but it's in, it, we're seeing it in asset prices, right? Like, why would you be surprised? Of course. Yeah. So, it, but like, if gold tripled, if gold tripled in the next six months, none of us would be surprised. Like you said, if gold won parabolic, we wouldn't be surprised. And I would, I personally wouldn't be surprised if like the value of NF, of NFL teams went up three x, NBA teams. Oh, and how about fucking? How about art, Bobby? How about these fucking piles of shit on canvas that people are trading with each other for, you know, a billion dollars each? Oh, this was, uh, you know, this was drawn by fucking so-and-so in the year 1806. Oh, okay. Uh, How about, uh, I don't know, $157 million for that? Yeah, great. Let me just hang that on my wall. Like, are you kidding me? Are you insane? Right. So maybe maybe that's what's happening with all these these stories. All these stories are limited float, you know? Sotheby's did a scotch auction, all right, Bobby, like uh, a year ago. Oh, Chris, they I, were auctioning off. That, that was your own talk. I can't take credit for what your own say. So I don't give a shit. Whatever. All right, all the right, point all right. is, the point is, Sotheby's auctioned off some fucking old fuck who died scotch collection, all right, from like the 1600s or the Mesozoic era or something. Who cares? But the point is, somebody came in and bid like $60 million for this guy's scotch collection, okay? I walk across the street right now for $100. I can walk out with at least five or six bottles of scotch that tastes mostly like paint thinner, but it's going to do the trick. There's somebody right now in an auction house that has so much money, all right? There's so much money being distributed to this person one way or another. It is coming out of their eyeballs and their asshole so much that they can't think of anything else to do but to fork over $60 million for a scotch collection, okay? And then people are like, oh, where's the inflation? Where's the inflation? Some guy just fucking charged $120,000 for a banana duct taped to a wall in an art museum. And people are asking where the inflation is. I mean, it's absolutely insane. But if and it let's stays, talk about if commodities. It stays in all those like, areas, who cares? Man. Well, yeah, but, but it's out there. The point is the money is out there. All right. When when the Fed prints five trillion for this CARES Act, all right, and then throws everybody a breadcrumb to the tune of twelve hundred dollars per person after they have printed fifty thousand dollars per U.S. citizen, all right, and everybody knows while every U.S. citizen is bearing the brunt of fifty thousand dollars per person in inflation, they haven't gotten fifty thousand dollars worth of benefits at all anywhere close to that. They've probably gotten five percent of that. But the rest of that money is out there. It's out there somewhere. And that's, you know, walk into a Sotheby's if you want to see, you know, people with more money than they know what to do with spending it on shit that if the three or four of us ever turned out to be billionaires, we would never in a million years buy. We would just be driving around in our Hondas like normal. and We would just have some extra money in the bank. But the money is out there. The last thing I'm going to say real quick, then I'm going to let everybody go because I hate monopolizing the conversation. But after I've had a couple of cocktails, that's how it works. Let's talk about commodities real quick. All right. Right now, I'm on a beach. All right. 
before when my friend was talking about dispersion and making very good points, I put the phone on mute. All right. While the phone was on mute, I asked the person behind the bar to take a whole coconut and saw it in half. And when they did that, I asked them to fill one half of the coconut with rum and then hand it to me. And they did that. So that's my whole thesis on commodities. It's been very nice talking to you guys. Bobby Kraft, I love you. I'm going to give you a big kiss when I see you. See you later, buddy. <laughs> it's Chris Irons. So that, so that was fun. Oh, yeah. No, we're, hey, we're still going. I mean, uh, look, I, I, I think, you know, one, one, to just hit on one point that Chris was making about, you know, going to other cities, you know, it's at least, look, I, it's, for me, it's not so much about law and order. You know, I, there's always going to be um, some sort of police presence and making sure um, everything is, is running smoothly. And it should get better, of course. You know, we're having a big problem with police brutality right now. I think we can all agree. Um, but at the end of the day, when I'm thinking just quality of life, honestly, I mean, look, I've been in LA more than half my life and, and then in New York for the other bit, you know, we got two New Yorkers on here and, 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 and then Kevin in Breckenridge, you know, and, or yeah, Boston, whatever. I, I, I intentionally ignore that. B for Breckenridge. Uh, <laughs> yeah, B is for Breckenridge. That's right. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, you start, that's when you start thinking to yourself, like, okay, I surf how many days a week? All right. Let me put that calculation into play of like, is it, am I really missing out on doing my favorite hobby by, because I'm only doing it less now and sacrificing that to then move somewhere more inland where my dollar will go much farther. You know, like that's, I, amongst my friends and people we talk to, especially in LA that are kind of, we're all on the same kind of uh, economic scale. That's really the question that we ask ourselves. It's not so much of like, you know, is it a great place to live? Of course, LA and New York are great places to live. Like, you know, there's a lot going on right now because there's just, there's a lot of civil unrest, but to make the argument in general that they're not great, and that's not what Chris was saying, but they are great places to live. So it's just having to, it's really trying to put that equation together, you know? That was my piece. Interesting, interesting half argument, Bobby. Oh, thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. No, it's, it's true though. There's a reason why, um, you know, taxes can be higher in certain places because people are not as willing to move out of those areas. And, uh, you know, that, that allows people are willing to pay higher taxes, um, even if they're not getting a commensurate return on that quote unquote investment into the government because they, they can live by the water. You know, look, uh, California and the beaches and San Francisco and things like that uh, are, are great places uh, to live, set aside the, um, set aside maybe some of the civil unrest and homelessness and things like that. But there's a reason why people love to live there. Same thing with New York. And, you know, to, to Kevin's point earlier, yeah, maybe, you know, you go to visit Montana or Wyoming or something like that, but I want to order sushi, you know, and have it delivered to my apartment and, and have it be great. <laughs> and I can do that here in 20 minutes. I can uh, do that. I can do that here in Breckenridge instantaneously. Or yeah, if you want, or if you wanted five options, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, not to, say, not to say that it's an absolute thing, but look, you've got culture uh, in certain of these cities that can't be replicated elsewhere, and uh, there is a reason why people love to live here. And you know, there is a tipping point at some point with taxes and with maybe some unrest, but ultimately, yeah, I would say I'm long-term bullish on on great cities. I mean, short, short term, short term, what's happening from, you know, 
And then it's in, in cases you see it already in Harvard where the kids don't want to pay $50,000 to be trained on a, on, a, on, a, on a monitor. The other thing I'm seeing is municipalities are getting, are getting a lot of pressure right now because the kids aren't going to school. So people want their taxes back, okay? Because what, what's ta what are taxes used for? Schools, police, fire, and a few other things, okay? Yeah, so and if, if we not, and the if police, we don't have school, we, there's probably maybe more fires because people are at home. Yeah, but again, if there's, there's, if there's no services being provided I'm, and I'm supposedly paying taxes for these things, you're starting to read about it, okay? Um, I do think that it's gonna be short-lived, but I do think that it's gonna be something that's gonna be seen more and more and more if this stuff continues. I mean, I think people will take it for a little while, but if, if, for example, um, some municipality cancels all schools for next year, I mean, the impact of that is going to is going to be crazy. I mean, again, it's it's wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm paying for this. Um, I do not envy any seniors at, in, at all, either seniors in high school or like going about to start their first year in university. I really do not envy. How about seniors. seniors like me who have to pay the taxes to not to not get any any. Uh, any benefit I did. from the schools. It's interesting. I, I, you know, I saw somebody tweet that uh, uh, the other day and I thought that was an interesting argument. It's like, all right, well, because on one hand, we all agree that, you know, we want to trust our institutions to make sure that everything is, you know, they're, they're all by the following the health guidelines and everything like that. But at the same time, it's like, okay, well, especially in places like California and New York, where really high tax rates, you're like, okay, well, all right, if school's not going to happen, like how, what, what, what do we do here? Like, what, what, how do we, how do we figure this situation out? You know, and, and not only that, like, you still want to make sure our teachers are compensated. You know, I, I think we can all agree at the same time that you don't want to see teachers get their pay cut just because now school went online as well. So it's like, it's like, how, how do you, how do you, I don't know, I'm not smart enough to really put that equation together, but I will say one last thing on, on, I, I see, at least for me personally, I see the unrest. It, it's, it's almost a necessary evil right now. I think there's a lot of things that, you know, do need to be, um, you know, I, I think some of these protests are definitely warranted, um, you know, but uh, I, I do hope to we see some actionable change so that protests don't need to keep happening because from a safety perspective, you know, I think, um, I think we, we want to see that, uh, you know, if, if that was ever even a percentage cause of some, uh, of some cases, you know, we want to see some answers happen there so that, you know, at least cases do go down in that sense. But I digress. I think I want to get on to the next topic. I don't mean to close it off, but there is two other topics that I wanted to get to today. Um, <laughs> and that's talking about SPACs. It's gotten some nice. news. SPAC, it's been in the news a bit. It's been talked about a lot. Special Acquisition Corporation. You know, yeah. I'd say let's, you're wrong. We, we were uh, direct messaging about this a little bit earlier. So you want to kick us off here? Yeah, so um, SPACs, they stand for Special Purpose Acquisition Corporations. Um, and basically what they are is they're these blank, blank check companies um, that are raised by like a, a sponsor, usually either a private equity sponsor or a hedge fund sponsor, or just someone who is a, known as a business person or something like that. And, um, and they basically go out to investors and say, hey, you guys should buy shares in my SPAC. Uh, to help me fund the SPAC bank account with cash. Um, and I'm going to go find a great acquisition target for our SPAC to buy. Um, but don't worry, like you're going to get to vote on anything I bring forward before I, I complete any acquisition, like you'll get to vote. And if you don't like the deal, you'll get your cash back plus interest. 
Now, the investors who agree to that, who decide to fund the SPAC, th those typically aren't really like fundamental investors, right? Because what are you investing in? You're investing in a shell company that's going to own cash and you don't even know what that shell company is going to buy. So there's nothing to analyze. <clears throat> so you're not really a fundamental investor if you're buying the shares in the SPAC. You don't really care what the sponsor is going to buy or how much he pays for it, as long as you could flip it to the next guy. So you're trusting that that person is going to be able to market the deal that they do to other investors. And those initial funders of the SPAC, their intention is never to even vote yes for a deal. Like if a sponsor brings a deal to them um, and they can't sell their shares to someone else for a higher price before it closes, They'll basically just vote no for the deal. They'll say, I want my cash back. And then the transaction will never close. So those guys, the initial purchasers of those, of those facts, they're not fundamental buyers. They're doing it because they want to flip the shares, right? Um, and so then you're like, okay, so what are they in for? Like, they don't want to just buy these shares for 10 bucks and then sell them for 1050. Like, you're not going to lock up your money for two years. Why are they doing this? Why are the sponsors doing it? And the sponsors are doing it for one reason. It's very clear. They get fees um, in the form of economics and the transaction they bring about. So they get paid very, very handsomely for the deals they do. And the people who buy the initial shares in the SPAC, they get warrants on whatever ends up being bought down the line. They get to keep these warrants on that acquisition. So like if it's a really hot deal, they get to keep the warrants. Before the deal closes, they try to like flip those shares the more fundamental buyers who like analyze the, the target and decide whether they think the story is sexy or not and whether they want to, you know, pay. If the stack was done at 10 bucks, then the initial buyers of the stack are willing to sell it for 10 and a quarter, 10, 50, whatever. They just make 25 or 50 cents. Then they get to keep the warrants that they could either sell down the line or sit on if they like the deal. And um, so that's what the buyers of the initial stack get and the sponsor gets. Now, the, the, the companies that decide to sell to the SPAC, what do they get, right? They get to, a lot of people who raise these SPACs say, okay, you can avoid coming public through the traditional IPO route, which requires you know, a lot of planning and road shows and big IPO fees. But in reality, they're still paying fees to the sponsor. They're still doing road shows because they have to go and market the deal to the fundamental buyers, because like I just touched on, if fundamental buyers don't step up and buy the SPAC shares from the initial SPAC funders, the transaction won't close. So they need it, so that the management team still needs to go out. They put together these long decks and presentations and they go to Boston and they go to New York and they go to California and they, they try to meet with as many investors to convince them that they should be buying these SPAC shares and voting yes for the deal. So they don't really get to avoid this IPO process. So like you have this thing that's pitched as, a great deal for so many people and in reality it's historically just been a, a great deal for the initial SPAC buyers not the fundamental buyers who buy their shares from them and the sponsors who make a tremendous amount of fees and if you go back and look at the historical performance of SPACs post-transaction they haven't done very well at all and it kind of makes sense because like the sponsor just wants to get any deal done in their two-year window because they get paid fees only if the deal closes. They're willing to over, you know, to pay up a lot of times. And the people who are selling the business to the SPAC, they're like, okay, if you're willing to overpay me for it, and I, you know, I still get to retain my job in the management position, like, fine, I'm in. And so they historically haven't performed very well. Lately, 
they have been performing extraordinarily well. And a lot of the SPAC sponsors have figured out that if you buy these like high flyer, you know, super rapid growth companies that retail investors are attached to, there's a low float and there's a lot of demand for these shares, the stocks just go parabolic. And there's, a, there's you know, a handful of examples of um, SPACs that have literally like from the moment the transaction closed until a month later, they've just gone parabolic. Um, I don't know that this is going to end particularly well. Like the SPAC sponsors are seeing all this demand and they're getting more and more aggressive with the sizes of the SPACs they're trying to raise. And, um, and so like, I'm just curious to hear your guys' thoughts of like, whether you think this is going to end well, I don't personally. And uh, what's driving this mania in, in SPACs? Um, let me just sit down and tell you that everything that you've outlined, I think is on the money quite well, quite well outlined. And <clears throat> to me, SPACs are shysters promoting amateurs crap. Okay. Um, I've seen the same thing. I think some of the electric vehicle uh, companies that have been really hot these days, I forget this. I think there's one of them that went SPAC. I forget Nicola. which one it was. Nicola, yeah. I was, was it Neo or something? Nicola. I forget. Which one? It's, uh, it's, it's basically uh, like Tesla times 100. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> you're absolutely Steven, right. do you own it? You, you mentioned that you have to say if you own it now. <laughs> I do not own it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, think, I think you're correct, your own, about the, about the whole thing is, I mean, you look at it and you go, I just keep shaking my head. No, no, no. This is not going to end well for anybody. Okay. It's going to only end up, up well for the, what I said, the shysters. They'll make some money. They'll do the deals. And it's just, it's just to me, it's just a public way of being able to bring private deals you know, that's, that, that uh, make them even more money. Uh, again, I mean, we're all familiar with uh, financiers and so-called investors. Their job is to make money, all right? Whether or not it's Goldman Sachs or whether or not it's a microcap investor or whatever it is. Um, I just... I, yeah, I, they're really schemes. It seems like it's a scheme between yeah. the IPO underwriter, the SPAC sponsor, the people who are selling the business into the SPAC at a lot of times an elevated valuation and the initial funders of the SPAC who get these warrants basically for free. Um, and then the, the people who are left on the hook are like the people who actually buy the SPAC shares because they watch these investor presentations and they're like, wow, this story is awesome. And like, look, there have been some successful ones. Uh, there've been more than a handful of them, but in general, it just seems like a great way to like, for sophisticated people to take advantage of less sophisticated people. I uh, 100% agree. And not only that, but the funny thing is, is that I think it's selling, particularly, of course, if they are NASDAQ or, or um, um, New York Exchange, because they can, they can shyster up to the, to the Robin Hooders. And I, and I think that is probably part and parcel of it, is it's a great way of being able to suck in tons of retail, um, unsophisticated, if we want to sit down and say that Robin Hood is unsophisticated um, and in some fashion, I mean, it's just, I, I forget, as I said, I've, I've seen a few of them and, and like they go from a buck to 14 bucks within literally a couple of days. How'd you like to own the sponsor? So there, there's one that popped up uh, just, just a few days ago uh, that I own uh, is a company called Pendrel, which trades at about $150,000 a share and, and I own it and owned it. I've owned it for quite some time. Um, they are sponsoring a, uh, a new SPAC. They're trying to raise $250 million. It's called uh, Holicity, H-O-L-I-C-I-T-Y. 
And uh, for Pendrel as the sponsor, this is a good way to, as an example to what you're on, um, you know, kind of spoke of how these things are designed. Pendrel uh, is the sponsor. They put up $25,000, they get 20% of the company. So if they raise $250 million, Pendrel turns that $25,000 into 50 million. Right. So you want to be, you know, typically want to be on that side. <laughs> you want to be on the sponsor side. And here you're able to buy it if you, you know, want to spend $150,000 per share for the Pendrel shares if this goes through. Um, so, you it know, it just that, reminds me of housing derivatives. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, when something smells like this, I mean, it, it's, you got to have a bad nose not to be able to understand what's going on. I mean, it, it just seems too too blatant in my in my opinion. Again, you know, I'm unsophisticated, so I just see. What's... Well, you know, it's, it's a way it's a way for some of these companies to go public in an environment today that's a little bit more difficult to do so. Uh, you know, that's why Nikolai and a few others have done that. That's actually why they probably performed well here, as as your own spoken. Well, the well, interesting me... thing the interesting thing is that this is comparable to the Canadian market, CSE, okay? Because CSE was, was set up almost exclusively to, to uh, bring weed companies to the, to, the, to, the, to the market for any number of reasons that had to do with cash and transactions of cash and things of that type. So they had to set up a separate market, CSE is the thing. And the other thing about it is, is that if you're a Canadian company, um, they all try to avoid, even a lot of American companies go to the Canadian marketplace so that they can get to the market faster, non-IPO, save money and all these different things. Same kind of argument. And they're just called shell companies. I mean, it's, a, it's the mostly old mining companies that are still around. They're still kicking and screaming. Um, somebody owns them. And all they're going to do is, is they're going to blend this new company into the old shell. And the guys who own the shell, um, you know, take out a, take out a, a big hunk of what's going on. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's the same kind of deal. These SPACs are, in fact, shells. Okay, whether they're well-run shells or whatever, they're just a shell company that's going to go out and do something. And oh, by the way, we're all going to make ourselves rich. Similarly, I forget that there's another there's another means of doing the same thing. And I mean, shells can be extraordinarily bad because they have massive skeletons associated with an operating company in the mining business, which of course is sketchy to begin with. And there's there's another way that it's done in Canada. And again. I forget the phrase and I, I, I'll have to look at it, but it has the same kind of thing is, is that um, three or four guys, maybe a hedge guy, maybe people from, from you know, a can accord will set up this something, something, something company. Um, they'll set it up for $250,000, which I think is the, is, the, is the going in price. <clears throat> they'll get a company, um, they'll, they'll have the company assigned to them and they sit on you know, a million shares at a penny and then they bring this company public at $2. Thank you very much if you can do it, okay? I mean, some of these things are pretty astonishing. Some of them, some of the terms and conditions absolutely suck, and some of the terms and conditions are actually well done. But again, I, I have to go back and find out what the name of this alternative is. It's, a, it's the non-skeleton way of being able to take a shell company and that merge your company into that shell company. And again, I forget what it is, uh, but it sounds exactly the same. Um, I mean, shell companies in, in Canada, you know, the IPOs, the, 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 the reverse, reverse mergers, the reverse IPOs, they get public and I've never seen a lot of them work very well. And that's one of the reasons why when this whole SPAC thing came out, you know, shysters promoting amateurs crap, and it's the same kind of thing. So I've seen it before. 
Yeah. yeah, that's where there's potentially an opportunity, though, because in general, that's what it is. But as an individual investor, if you can find uh, an exception to the rule, if they, you know, there's a, a company that's acquired, brought, brought public through that process, um, or bought, bought into, you know, to be brought public, um, you know, one out of maybe 10 or 15 or 20 might be an opportunity because uh, it's a baby thrown out with a bathwater type of situation. So it's, it's, you know, it's worth looking at as an individual investor. Look, the, the Burger King parent, the parent company of Burger King, uh, restaurant brands, uh, which I do own, um, they came public through a SPAC. It's probably one of the most successful SPAC deals of all time. Um, and so I agree, like they're not all broken, but in general, when you see like more and more people piling into this trade on the sponsor side, and they're trying to raise bigger and bigger pools of capital, because just because they, they see what's working in the retail environment, and then they go out and like buy these things that they think will resonate well with retail investors, it's just, I don't know, doesn't so well with me. Personally. Again, if, if you go into one of these things and management has their, as you just said, restaurant friends, if the management walks in and their eyes are wide open and they know the game and the sophisticated players and they have sophisticated capital markets, um, people, you know, working with them, then I think it can work. However, many of these companies do not have sophisticated capital markets uh, um, um, expertise. Um, they're just going in because it's cheap. You know, it was made, you know, again, I'm looking at micro caps rather than something as significantly large. Um, if a company's already, doing well, they're private, and they want to go some other, they could very well be a, a substantial good candidate, okay, when they already have a developed revenue stream, they already have a developed management team, and they have a very, very sophisticated means of being able to reach out to the capital markets, okay. Um, so I wouldn't disagree that there are opportunities, but I think that the opportunities are probably um, much more well-defined um then then not i mean again if you're going in if you're going in wide wide open with good a, a, a good um approach again whatever the hell that means um you Kevin, probably can do very well hey, what would you guys say is some criteria for a successful spec i mean like you said one in 10 15 might actually be decent you know and i think we can all agree it, uh, there's so many of these gem of microcaps that but, you ask them all the time. They're like, the question how, you how'd you become to, public? Why are you public? And they're like, well, the, oh, the former the manager. You have to ask, the question you have to ask, Bobby, is, is a SPAC a means of being able to run a venture capital business, okay, with retail money rather than, rather than going out and finding money? So if, you, if you're a venture capital guy, you have to go out and find 500 million, okay, and right. do 10 deals, and one, one works. That's what you're saying is if the SPAC only makes one in 10, then it's the same thing as the venture capital return on investment. So what's the, what's the SPAC doing that's different from you know, typical venture capital? It's bringing, it's bringing the venture capital to retail. Right. Is that your own? Would you agree to that? Yeah, it's, just, it's very easy to raise a SPAC because the, the people who fund the SPAC initially have caught on to this trade where it's basically, it's not basically, it's, it is risk, effectively riskless to them. Like the only risk they really take is that the money, so that basically they fund this back, let's say with 100, 200, 300, 500, a billion dollars. That cash then sits in a trust at some custodian bank and the sponsor can never touch the cash until they bring a deal to the SPAC sponsors and the SPAC sponsors have to vote in favor of the deal. 
Otherwise, it's just accruing interest with treasury bonds or your treasury notes, and they get the cash back after two years with accrued interest. So literally, like, they're never going to vote for a deal, most of these guys. They're just going to get their cash back plus, like, 1% interest. So, like, that's unless the, unless the custodian bank goes bankrupt or, like, commits fraud and, and, and drains the account, it's riskless to them. What they do get is they get the free option, other than earning 1% bond, like, return, they get a free option that that deal takes off with retail investors and they could sell it before it ever closes. So they never actually took fundamental risk and that they get the warrant associated with the closed acquisition to have a lot of value usually. So like those guys, they're one, you, you, if you find a sponsor that those guys think can get a deal done, they'll give it money. So like it really is a funding mechanism that's riskless to the sponsor. Usually, you know, they just need a bank to underwrite it. They need to find some people who are willing to trust that they can get a deal done. And so, I mean, yeah, it's accurate. It's a way of like pawning off these deals to retail where the initial funders of the SPAC aren't the ones who are like funding the VC firm, right? Like the VC firm or the P firm or whoever is really just, they're like, Hey, let me borrow this money from you guys at 1% in return for that. I'll give you warrants on this deal. And then when the deal is actually about to close, we'll like, you can flip the whole deal to like retail investors, just put together a nice presentation and convince them why this is a great deal. And um, I would say that the things I would look for, for what makes a good SPAC personally, like, first of all, the quality of the business, obviously, a lot of times SPACs when they're, when they're, when they do deals, it's with very low quality businesses. They don't show a lot of operating history. They'll show maybe like a year or two right. years of adjusted numbers. Um, the management team that's selling into the SPAC, they're taking a lot of cash off the table. That's a negative. Like if I, I think successful SPACs, they just want to use this as a way to go public, but the, to raise money for the actual company, but not to take money off the table for themselves. Like if you see the SPAC, the people selling the business into the SPAC, taking, you know, most of their consideration in cash, that's like, okay, you don't like the valuation of this business at this price. So you'd prefer cash. Like the same time you're asking investors to buy in at that valuation. So that's, that's something that, I mean, I want to see lot, long operating history with a high quality business where the management team is rolling a significant chunk of their investment in the business in along with the SPAC holders. I want to see a sponsor that has a lot of skin in the game as well, right? So the people who are selling the business, the management team are staying on board and they have skin in the game and the person who's choosing the deal and deciding how much to pay for that deal, they have a lot of skin in the game and a track record of doing this, even if not in SPAC form, in other, you know, they have a long track record of investing success. So like those, just off the top of my head, those are like the few things I think you should be looking for, unless you're just playing the greater fool game, in which case you should just be looking for the story that's gonna sell the best to the next fool and that the Robin Hooders are gonna get excited about, which is what's been going on in a lot of these names. So Nicola is is actually a pre, it was a SPAC company, right? I think it was. I don't. Right. I haven't spent that much time on it, but yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. Like, yeah. You know, and I think I thought that um, uh, Neo might have been as well, but I'm sure that I'm, I'm pretty sure that one of the electric vehicle companies was spacked into the into the marketplace. And of course, you look at you look at Nicola, and it went from, you know, what appears what appears to be three dollars to almost a hundred bucks. Again, it's that, it's that pent up thing that's going on. Your own just left us. 
I'm sure I'll come back. I, I mean, you know, him away. <laughs> you know what popped in my head because we've been talking about e- we talked about EV. I think I think it was not this last one, but the one before. You know, what's a uh, where where's your wrong? He's gonna like this question. Come we'll, back. Yeah, we're but, talking about uh, Tesla, and I was talking about Ford, and yeah, I think it was Yaron who asked the question about well, why isn't Ford doing anything? Interestingly right. enough, they just put a 2.5 billion dollar investment into Rivian. Okay, and Rivian is. Um, is literally the look they're almost located across the street I mean, they're, they're only about 10 minutes 10 minutes away from from uh, from where ford is located you know i try to check into it and find out but you know that's but but again i mean you know these 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 things are and the, the commentary on tesla thing it reminded me again is that when you really really look at it none of the uh the car manufacturers have done much yet yet in uh, electric vehicles. I know that Chevy brought out the Volt and Nissan brought out the Leaf and that's been it, okay? But they've been around for what, six, seven years now? I got a question for you, Kevin. Yeah. What's the number one most popular stock on Robinhood Ford. Ford. Yeah. Yeah. The interesting thing about it is because, you know, one of the reasons for it might very well be that they, they will be. They try to announce uh, Ford, the Ford 150 electric. But they <laughs> they withdrew it from the marketplace because of the COVID stuff. Um, but again, now what's happening is is that they may flip flop and use the skateboard, which is the underlying the underpinnings of the Rivian R I V I A N private company. Um, uh, they, again, they may they may find that the Rivian is better is a better product than uh, than what they're what they've been working on for a while. But again, it's the fascinating commentary. I I still don't believe that that um, that uh, Tesla is a software company. I think it's a car manufacturer. Absolutely, absolutely. They'll, so they'll realize that the investors will realize that one day. The interesting thing about it is is that there was commentary. Oh, I'd say 15 years ago, but maybe even 20 years ago, um, when Ford. I work with the uh, with the uh, electronics people, and and their module designers, uh, in broad terms. And one of the things that they were looking at was being able to uh, download as appropriate upgrades to their operating systems and upgrades to their, to their module uh, designs so that they could actually do changes on the fly, okay? Which is, which is what software companies do in general. Let's get the software out there. It'll work 80% of the time. We'll fix it we'll, we'll get people, you know, version upgrades. Uh, and it came to the conclusion that Ford said, no way, we're not gonna do that. We're not, we're not gonna have, you know, half-assed software running running cars okay we have liability associated with it and they said no it's gonna go out it's gonna go out right so there's quite a bit of interesting stuff going on again it's it's really quite funny and like you know i have a I, ha- I have that background so as a result i have a kind of a cynical view toward uh, toward tesla and i should be talking to um was it garvin who was um yeah the car Hi, you're gonna love it we're actually recording our uh, esg impact investing panel for the event uh, no, just, you're gonna. I you're tell gonna, you, it's, uh, you're gonna love it. It's really I know. Fun. I know. Get me on that one. I'm gonna be just as great. No, you don't have to. I'm sorry, but you know, you know. Okay. So sorry, I interrupted your introduction about uh, what I thought was gonna be Tesla. What? Well, it's sorta. I mean, it, my question being, and this is something that you know, look, as a as a you know, admitted millennial, <coughs> admitted millennial. I guess I, I guess I was a Freudian. <coughs> yeah, I'm a millennial. I knew you were a millennial. I admitted. Admitted millennial, you know, is, uh, you know, 
we, I think we could all also agree. I don't want to speak for anybody, but look, we want to see, you know, climate, you know, we want to limit uh, climate change and we want to see, you know, more electronic vehicles and we, we want to see the change. But right now, I mean, you can't help but ask the question, what's a, what's a bigger bubble? You know, the EV market, the SPAC market, or the SPAC for EV market? I mean, it's, it's, kind, of a, it's kind of a funny thing that we're seeing right now. I mean, maybe not that EV, funny. A SPAC for EV market takes, really takes into all the considerations that you need to, to go crazy. <laughs> Perfect storm. Great, Perfect great storm, that bubble. Sure. You know? Should we save that for next week? Maybe we should save that for next week. Is that a question for next week? Yeah, maybe no, I, I think it's it's probably it's company specific, but um, of course, of course. I don't know. I mean, Tesla's kind. Of, I mean, Tesla's valuation valuation recently has gotten pretty extreme. So if some SPACs, some aren't going to end well. I have no yeah. idea what's going to happen with Tesla. All right, guys. Hey, Ron, did, did, did you did you check out uh, Dom and Mamanon? I think I, I can't say his name. Oh yeah, I did. I did. I did. Interesting guy. Very interesting. Very guy. very interesting guy. I mean, you, you go back and look at his his valuations on Tesla, and you know, I told you it was he was like, wrong. He's wrong. Yeah, <laughs> is he wrong or is he right or is he, or is he too early or too late? Pretty yeah. interesting stuff though from valuations perspective. All right, guys. Sorry, I don't mean to cut it off, but we gotta we gotta end it. Everybody, give where people can find you. Don't worry, we'll talk. We'll press. We'll stop recording. We'll talk more. Don't worry. But. uh uh, please, everybody, give your uh, uh, where people can find you on uh, both social and, and your website. So, uh, uh, Stephen, let's go with you. Uh, yeah, willowoakfunds.com, uh, Willow Oak Asset Management uh, is a company that we run, and uh, my funds are Ketos Capital, A R Q U I T O S, and uh, can be found on Twitter at uh, Stephen underscore Keel, K I E L. Cool, Kevin. Um, I'm Kevin, uh, the good prick. <laughs> on on Twitter, but I don't use it because I don't really care. Oh, yeah, I got you to use it the other day. You caught. Yeah, that, well, yeah, that was classic too. How much money did she make, Bobby? By the way, we, you know, I tried to get her to. I, I'm Kevin's referring to a video I do with my daughter, and she, uh, she's very demanding. I mean, I got to tell you, <laughs> it's a little thing. That was you well know, done, by the way. I try. I tried to sell her on doing it as a weekly, but then, uh, you know, she had too many demands. So you know, I said, okay, fine. No weekly. Sorry, you're wrong. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, One Main Capital, um, the website, onemaincapital.com, um, and my email address is both on my Twitter handle as well as on the website. So feel free to reach out via email. Awesome. And my name is Robert Kraft. Follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft, B O B B Y K K R A F T. And uh, yeah, you can find this on our YouTube channel, SNN Network YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash, just slash slash SNN wire. Thank you all for joining me today and uh, maybe see some of you next week. Thanks guys. Hey Bob, thank you. Thank you.